Do you want to raise children who act responsibly even when they don't feel like it? Do the right thing even when there is no one there to remind them? React respectfully even when they don't get their way? What about raising children who can solve problems even if they don't have all the answers? These are great questions, and I hear a resounding yes. Definitely the children we want to raise. In step families, as we're initially blending together, there are a tsunami of challenges that we did not expect. In this episode, I talk with Rachel Bailey, parenting specialist, about the yuck in parenting and touch upon how, as we're living and growing and maturing, we have opportunities to learn how to deal with the yuck in our daily lives. Rachel and I talk about the importance of addressing our five emotional needs in our families. We have a need for one, connection and intimacy, two, significance, three, capability, four, control, and five, security. I'm confident that while you may not use the word yuck to describe many of your experiences in your blend, after listening to Rachel, you're going to incorporate this word more extensively in your day-to-day vocabulary as you're talking about the things that you are experiencing in your blend. Step family life is hard, especially when it feels like the one you married is your opponent instead of your teammate. Hey, we're Bill and Jen Rogers, and we know how to get you on the same team. Instead of feeling defensive, emotionally exhausted, and anxious, it's time to play offense together. We know blending families is hard, so let's make it easier. Eight plus years into our relationship, we had vowed to stay married, but our starry-eyed courtship quickly got sucked into a dark hole of confusion and chaos, especially when the kids were with us, and resentment and anxiety grew when they weren't. We learned the hard way that our happiness as a couple was distinct from our happiness as a blended family. We weren't crazy, but many days we felt completely out of our minds. We needed clarity and hope. We didn't need to keep talking about our problems in therapy or chat with a counselor, and we certainly didn't need another lawyer. We needed to stop the pain. But how? Marriage retreats and conferences focused on traditional marriages and strategies, and while it seems like those tools and tactics would work, they simply didn't transfer over into our blended scenarios. What we needed were tools to equip us to deal with the complexities that we were experiencing. So many things were new. So much was unknown. How do you deal with a difficult, high-conflict ex-spouse? How do you deal with differing values in each home? How do you handle when you live in one state and your ex lives in another and you're fighting a custody battle? Look, we know that it's important to protect our marriages and help our kids blend without heavy expectations and a whole lot of conflict. We need guidance on how to handle discipline and acknowledge the confusion that's in our new roles without experiencing a whole bunch of shame. We don't need any more toxic situations, and we certainly don't need any more toxic people. And the last thing that we need is people telling us that we knew what we were getting in for. Hey, we didn't know. And if you're in that same situation where you're wondering what you got yourself into, you're in the right place. Welcome to Step Family Mission Possible. We know blending is hard. Listen in to today's episode where we make things easier. 
And hey, if you're looking for some help in how to blend beautifully together, send us an email at hello at stepfamilypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right, on to today's show. Meet Rachel Bailey. For over a decade, she has helped thousands of parents bring out the best in their children. In addition to a master's degree in clinical psychology, she's been an ADHD coach, an in-home mentor where she helps to improve family dynamics, therapist, and teacher of positive parenting techniques. She's also a mom who wants her kids to be able to do what they're supposed to do, handle the challenges they're going to face, and feel confident about themselves. But Rachel says that raising them in this way doesn't come naturally. Like you, she's tried traditional strategies, yelling, threatening, even the positive ones like rewards and praise. But none of those strategies worked in the long run, and they didn't feel good. So Rachel learned how to switch from Band-Aid parenting, using strategies that don't stick, to long-game parenting, which leads to results that last and make her feel more confident and in control. Rachel's taught thousands of families how to enjoy their kids again, and she can teach you too. Welcome to Step Family Mission Possible. I'm Jen Rogers. I'm holding down the fort in the snowy land of Missouri for Bill and I. If you liked today's episode, we'd love for you to tell somebody and share it with a friend. Thanks so much. When I went to Rachel's website, I listened to a bunch of her podcasts. And here's the thing that will help parents the most. Rachel gives practical advice that's easy to follow. Something that seems difficult, she breaks down and makes it easy. Rachel gives practical steps so we can gain more and more success. And when I asked her how parents find her, this is what she said. Most parents, by the time they come to me, are already feeling overwhelmed. So I do try to break things down into baby steps and actionable baby steps because I know it's actually the action that gets us out of our overwhelm. It makes me think of Tony Robbins and his mantra is massive action. What you focus on, that's where your energy is going to go. Often in blended parenting, when families come together, they have all of these disruptions that come up. It's so easy to say, I don't like this and I don't like that and I don't understand this. And so there's a whole lot of I, because many of our everythings are shifting. Can you help us understand a little bit of that shift that goes on with blended families from a professional perspective? Give us a little bit of some practical ways that we can respond to this huge shift when we come together and blend families. I want to talk specifically about why when we do have these changes and shifts in blended families, there is a lot of I because I think it's important to understand that's normal and there's something we can do about it so that we can shift in a more positive direction once we realize why we become a little bit more, I don't like this, I don't like that. And basically whenever there's a change, our brain, and I, we haven't talked too much about my background, but I was studying to be a neuropsychologist. So everything I teach has to do with how the brain works. And I will tell you that the the brain senses change as danger. Even if it's positive change, change is danger. And so what happens, this is where yuck actually comes in. What happens is when our brain senses any type of danger or threat or even discomfort, our brain senses any of that as a threat and it turns on our fight or flight response. I call any of those discomfort change, any of that, I call that yuck. That's where the term comes from, anything uncomfortable. So our brain senses discomfort as a threat. 
our fight or flight response kicks in. And what happens is our fight or flight response, among many other things, shuts down the part of the brain that allows us to have empathy for other people. It shuts down the part of the brain that allows us to think about our values and our morals and act aligned with that. It shuts down the part of the brain that allows us to regulate our emotions and act mature and responsible. So when there is this change in a family, our brain goes into fight or flight, into protect, defend, and it shuts down the part of the brain that would say, hey, you know what? There's change, I can handle this. What happens is we become what we call very egocentric when we are in fight or flight. We only think about ourselves. That's why all the eyes come out. I don't like this. I don't like that you're doing that. And it is really focused on our discomfort. That's very normal. That's what happens when we are in a place of change, especially if something has happened negatively that created that change in any way, our brain goes to that place. So we have to, the first thing we have to do is recognize the fact that this is a symptom of our yuck. And when we actually address our yuck, we will be able to move beyond the eye and the egocentrism and the thinking about what we don't like. I want to touch on that. I believe it's Caroline Lee says that we can grow healthy trees in our brain and get rid of the dead ones so that we can create these new patterns and new roads within ourselves. It really goes to us capturing every thought and deciding, is this one, is this really true? Is this aligned with my morals? Is this aligned with my values? And is it aligned with God's word? How are we responding to what's happening to us? You said that when we're uncomfortable, we're really focused on that discomfort. So what creates the yuck or the discomfort actually from a clinical perspective is our brain is constantly scanning to make sure our needs are met because we're survival-based creatures at heart. So our first, the first job of our brain is to help us survive. Once we are breathing and we have shelter and all those, you know, basic needs, it will say, okay, have our biological needs been met? Do we have enough food? Do we have enough sleep? And then it also considers our emotional needs and our emotional needs. There are five of them that I always look at our emotional needs. If they are not fully met, they, we will also go into yuck or discomfort. So I'm going to just mention the five emotional needs because you'll see that when there's a shift in the family especially if there is a lot of animosity that leads to the shift or any negativity that leads to the shift, the brain will sense that these emotional needs have not been met. So I'm just going to mention them and you'll hear pretty quickly that in a shift in a family, many of these needs have not been fully met. So the first is connection and intimacy, human intimacy. We're social creatures by nature. So we need to feel connected. So if there's a disconnect, our brain senses that as discomfort. The next is significance. So it's not just enough to feel connected. We have to feel significance, which is the need to know we matter. If there is someone or something making us feel as if we don't matter, we are going to go into yuck. The third is capability. So this is the need to know we can handle what life throws at us. If we don't feel capable of having a conversation with someone because they're never listening to us, if we don't feel capable of fostering a better relationship, that's going to put us into yuck. The fourth is a really big one is control. We have a need to feel a sense of control in our lives. And when there's a change, again, brain says, oh, I don't have control because predictability gives us control. And the last is another really big one, which is security. We need to know that everything is going to be okay. And when there's a change in a family dynamic, we often don't know that everything's going to be okay. So what we, what I tend to do with families when they're in yuck or with parents specifically is who I work with. I say, let's think about what's causing your yuck. It's not the event itself. It's partly what you said, Jen, which is how we're thinking about the event and how the event triggers our brain to say, hey, these needs have not been met. So that's really what causes it. And then what I do is I go through and say, first of all, let's look at our thoughts. 
Because as you described, there are useful thoughts that lead us out of yuck, and there are non-useful thoughts. That's how I describe them. Non-useful thoughts may be accurate. It may be this is really hard. It may be accurate, but non-useful thoughts put us deeper into yuck because they make us feel more out of control, more incapable. So I have parents look at their thoughts and then start to say, okay, what emotional needs do I need to address? I'm not gonna get those emotional needs met from someone else. I need to meet them myself. That's how we get ourselves out of yuck so we can start to act differently. I would say that I probably have struggled out of the two of us much more than my husband has in integrating in this role. It's not, it's actually not about them. When kids are being disrespectful and rude and pushing them away, it's about the kids' struggle. It's not about them. If you're a step-parent out there listening right now, I want to encourage you to breathe in and breathe out and let that soak in that it's not all about you. Understanding that blended families come from loss. There is something that created this transition from where you were to blending families together. And so when families come together and they blend, they have different histories and they have different experiences. And I think that speaks to the belonging need that we don't feel when we're not connected and we're not intimate, we definitely don't feel like we belong. And then we get the sense we have to be here or we're expected to show up this way. Let's assume a parent is struggling to create connection with their stepkid. Mm -hmm. So let's make them teenagers, okay? That they're new, newly teenagers, 13 or 14. They've recently blended together. They've maybe got a year under their belt and things just are not good. What suggestions or helpful tips can you give to the blended couple to work together to respond to what's going on with that teenager? So the first thing is to realize that if there's negativity, if there's negative behavior in the teen, that teen is actually not being a problem, they're having a problem. So what we tend to do is if we see resistance or negativity, we say, okay, what can we do to crack down on these behaviors? Whereas the opposite, we have to say, how is this teen struggling? How has their connection been different? And it's not just connection in the family, it's how might this have disrupted connection with their friends? Because during the teenage years, that's really important. So looking at their connection holistically, how might we be trying to convince the teen to be as part of the family as we think they should be, instead of saying, hey, how has this affected you? One of the things I highly recommend is, and this is something that is so non-instinctive, but is to let any child, teens especially, complain and say everything they hate. We, especially if we, we create a blended family, that will scare the you know what out of us. If we say, tell me everything you hate, because we think that it's just gonna make it worse. It ultimately makes it better. And that is actually a way to increase the strength of a relationship by saying, tell me everything you don't like. And let me understand how you're struggling and how this affected your connection and your sense of control. That's one of the first things I do is just say, hey, I just wanna listen. Just let me listen. Now, it might be that they're not even ready to talk to you because they don't feel safe enough. And then what I would suggest is making baby steps. And the very simplest way to make baby steps is just to start to listen to something that that teen is interested in and either ask them about it or later come around and maybe defer to them as an expert. So let's say this teen likes baseball. Just if you know that's something they're interested in, you can either ask them about something or if they're even resistant to that, just saying, hey, my friend also has a son or a daughter who's interested in baseball. Can you just tell me something quick that I could tell them to get them started? Like deferring to them as an expert, these small things are what I call deposits into relationships. 
So if they're not ready to tell you everything that they're struggling with, just start very small with, hey, can I ask you about something I know a lot about, something I know you're interested in? And the last thing I will say is when they don't respond, don't give up. Just go a little bit smaller and a little bit less threatening because they have a wall of yuck built up and we're chiseling away. And here's what I learned because I was actually a therapist for teenagers for a few years. What I learned from teens is that, yeah, they get annoyed when you ask them questions, but they also notice when you stop. And so if a step parent stops because they're not getting the response they want, first they have to remember it's not personal, it's yuck. But if they stop, the teen will say, oh, they stopped caring. So I'm really not going to make an effort. So we don't stop. We chisel very baby steps. So I hope that answers your question. It it does. And it's so interesting that you use the word chisel because it's like going to the dentist and having them drill in your teeth. It is definitely painful. So I want to go back to the very beginning of what you said. You said something key that they are not the problem. Yeah, that's a really big one. And this all has to do with, again, this concept of yuck. They are not being a problem. They're having a problem. This term first came from someone else. It is not mine, but this is basically what I teach parents is that when you see negative behavior, a child is not being a problem. They're having a problem Mm -hmm. because yuck, what happens, I mentioned this briefly in the beginning, when we're in yuck, we often turn it out. And so we are disrespectful. We are aggressive. We blame a lot when we're in yuck. You have to remember when we are in yuck, we cannot act positively. But more importantly, the opposite is true. When someone is not acting positively, it is because they are in yuck and need help with the yuck. Yeah, I know that it is easy for us as parents to blame, to say, maybe we need to take this kid somewhere and quote unquote, fix the kid. Our conversations and our approach is mutual in in the sense that we're asking the parents to step back for a minute and ask some tougher questions about how is it that you're interacting with your kids? What are your expectations for your kids? And how are you communicating those expectations for your kids? Absolutely. Because to your point of feeling out of control, you as a stepmom felt out of control. So your desire, when the brain feels out of control, the attempt is to get more control. So you try to control the child more. They also have a need for control. So they're going to go into yuck and they're going to try to control back. And these are the power struggles that I help so many families through is the parent needs control. The child needs control. And so it creates a lot of explosions and a lot of resistance. We don't need to fix the child. We actually need to, when we, we sense that we need to fix the child. Often we need to say, what am I doing to contribute to this? What's my yuck here? We just take a step back. And that's really challenging to do when the emotions are all revved up and the blood is pumping and, and you just you are convicted of your rightness. And that just, again, goes back to what we continue to learn that the the study on the brain is just so fascinating. I think what happens from time to time is that parents forget that their brain development is in a much different place than what their kids' development stages are. So let's keep in line. We'll use this teenager one more time. So can you talk a little bit about how their brain might be processing things differently than the parental brains? Absolutely. So what's important to know, first of all, is the part of the brain that allows us to act mature and responsible. It's called the prefrontal cortex. There are lots of things that live in that part of the brain that allow us to regulate our emotions and do the things that we're supposed to do, even when it's hard. All of that mature, responsible behavior lives in the prefrontal cortex. So first of all, prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until the mid-20s. 
So in the, in the prefrontal cortex in children and adolescents, it's not even fully developed in teenagers, but there's something also that happens during adolescence called pruning which is where there are other changes in the brain that are happening. The brain is basically deciding, what do I need to take from my childhood? What can I get rid of? There's so much going on in the brain during adolescence. Mm -hmm. So then there's puberty. Let's add in some hormones during the teenage years. Their brains are in a lot of chaos. So they have not only what's going on at home, but what's going on with their friends and what's going on academically because just to add in one more variable, there are things called executive functioning skills that allow them per to perform academically. They're struggling in that area also. So they may be struggling with academics, with their emotions, with their bodies. And then we come in and we say something like, why didn't you get your homework done? Why didn't you take out the trash? And it's just everything going on. And that's the straw that broke the camel's back right there. And it's, I just asked them to take out the trash, but there was so much behind it. So much yuck. If parents are out there and they've got a four or five-year-old, what advice, what suggestions can you recommend for them as far as what's going on in the four or five-year-old brain? The four or five-year-old brain has even less ability to regulate emotions. So that's why when you see younger kids with the tantrums, they're flailing their bodies more. They're more physically aggressive. They just have so much less control over their emotions and their bodies. So you're going to see big, more physical responses in a four and five-year-old. And very honestly, four and five-year-olds, although all children need this, but four and five-year-olds need us to regulate ourselves even more because what happens is the brain actually, we have something called mirror neurons where we sense someone else's energy. We sense how they're doing. And so if a child senses that we are frustrated or angry or judgmental, they actually, because they're wired for survival, they sense that as a huge problem and that will exacerbate their yuck and their fight or flight response. So even younger, although again, this is true of children of all ages, but even younger, we need to regulate even more and realize my child is acting like a child because they're a child. And I need to be the adult to show what it looks like to not tantrum when things aren't going my way. So even more parents of younger children need to remember that, which often means working on our own yuck. That's what I do with most parents is I work on the parent yuck. Definitely. There's, uh, I've, I've got suitcases full of that yuck, I think, yes, <laughs> that I've been on tracking. So let's stay in this four and five-year-old. This is so helpful. Thank you for that. So the biggest thing that a parent can do is decide to demonstrate control of their body, control of their emotions. If they perhaps take on this detective hat and say, okay, instead of responding or re instead of reacting, I usually, I like to say we're going to respond and not react because reaction comes out without us thinking about it versus responding where we're making a choice that we are choosing this response. Just like we're going to choose a chocolate cheesecake over the vanilla cheesecake. We are making a choice. When we put on this persona of calm, we fight through the, I can't believe you're behaving this way again, or you need to go to timeout or you have you, you, there's, so it goes from that I, I, I to the blame, blame, blame. What could parents actually say to these four or five-year-olds after they, they first done the, okay, I remember what Rachel and Jen said, all right, I'm going to portray that all is calm. I do think it's hard because what I say a lot in my podcast is that in the moment parenting is very inefficient because when you are really upset, you actually cannot choose to be calm. So a lot of the parents that I work with, I say, okay, since in the moment it's very hard to change your thoughts or change what I call your story, it's actually more helpful to create 
to decide ahead of time how you're going to handle these situations than try to calm yourself down in the, in the moment. But once you do, very honestly, your question was, what do you say to a child? My answer is not much. Because when a child is in the middle of yuck or their fight or flight response has kicked in, they actually sense your energy more than they hear your words. And very honestly, sometimes your words give them ammunition for if they're, especially if they're still in yuck, they give you ammunition. So if you say to your child, I see that you're really frustrated, they'll say, no, I'm not frustrated. And then what that does is it puts a parent back into yuck because they're like, that didn't work. I said that. And they should have all of a sudden said, you're right, mommy, I'm frustrated. That's not how it works. So what I suggest in the moment is a parent actually to not try to get their child out of yuck, but to focus more on regulating themselves because the longer they stay regulated, a child senses that and the child actually regulates themselves when they sense that the parent is regulated. One of my favorite things to do, and I have a parenting academy that I know we're going to talk about later. I have say this, not that phrases. I have scripts. And one of the most common things I say in the say this, not that phrases and scripts is don't say that much in the moment. Focus more on regulating yourself, almost tune out to what your child is doing and tune into yourself. That's actually going to help them more. So I specialize in helping parents with kids with big emotions. This is one of the main lessons I teach. You're just regulating yourself. One of the things that I encourage when I'm working with parents is to establish a vision. So when you first come together, I say you have this starry-eyed love affair and pretty quickly it gets sucked into this black hole of chaos and confusion. Like what just happened? I I married my soulmate. I thought it was good. I've been married before. So I know I'm not going to make these mistakes again. And then you realize all of this stuff goes out the window. Like nothing is the same. All of your good intentions are gone because you're not on the same playground by any stretch of the imagination. And many people are dealing with high conflict ex-spouses or high conflict ex-grandparents and wondering how do we honor the family members of the foreigners who have come into our home and disrupted everything while the foreigners are asking the same thing. Like, who is this person? And my parent is now so different. And so we get caught up in that, in the moment kind of thing, this self-regulation, this self-discipline is so important. And one of the things that I encourage parents is that we practice eradicating the word try because try implies that we're either going to fail or we're going to succeed. And so instead we practice And when I think about practicing, I think, okay, if I were to practice the piano, I'm like on page 47 for pianos for dummies right now. That's about as far as I've gotten. But I know that on page 47, I know more than I did when I was on page zero. And so I ask parents to say, to take a look at, okay, this is where you are right now. So you've got this teeny bopper who has all of these things, what I'm sure for them feels like coming at them with all of the things that are occurring in their social life, in their family life, and in their brain life, if you will. And yet we know that 10 years from now, they're not going to be 13 years old. They're not going to be four years old. And so the question I ask parents is not, what do you want them to do? Or how do you want them to behave? But this is my visionary question for them. Who do you want them to become? The reason I asked that question is because then it takes the focus off of what they're doing. And instead it moves the focus on what kind of strategies do you want them to have in their toolbox, right? If you could speak a little bit about when you were blending as a kid 
Did you have a vision? Did you know as a family unit, what you were supposed to look like as a blended family or were, tell us a little bit about what that was like for you. No, I would, my blended family happened when I was really young. I was, both my parents were remarried by the time I was, I think three. So my experience is I just always had two sets of parents, but no, it was, and my brothers are a lot older than I am. And we've talked about this a lot. So they were, I was three, they were, they're six and nine years older than I am. So they're a lot older than I am. So when I was three, they were nine and 12. I, I, there was no vision. And I don't think when our generation was growing up, there was this much awareness either of we need to make a vision. We need to figure out. My mom happened to do an amazing job. I always call my parents' divorce very successful because she knew this stuff instinctively, but I don't, my friends whose parents were divorced, they never had a vision or anything like that. They just were like, Hey, you're going to be going to two different houses and deal with it. Which is in general, I think what our generation was more about was you have feelings, deal with it. So (laughs) we certainly didn't have any vision of what that would look like. We just did it. And and how do you think that would have changed? Do you think going back to those five senses of of those five needs that we have. Do you think that it would have changed in any way had you known as a family, this is our goal, this is the direction that we want to go under the leadership of the blended parents? So as a psychologist, I can say that absolutely would make a difference. As a daughter, I can say that absolutely would make a difference because it gives a sense of control when we know, and that's how I help parents too. I provide a pathway. I say, if you do this and you do this, this is how it's going to end up. That is like, ah, I know how things are going to go. And especially if parents are saying, not only is there a pathway, but we're going to deviate because life is real and it's not always going to go the way we imagined. And that's actually okay too. Then the brain no longer senses these deviations as a threat. It's, this is normal to have hard things happen. And that's as a parent, one of the, one of the main lessons I try to teach my children is we can do hard things. We can do hard things and it's normal to have hard things. So if we give our kids that pathway and know that when we deviate, that happens too. And that's actually okay. Yeah. I think that helps a lot, both from a daughter perspective and as a psychologist helping family. We were to put that in an example of today. I think this is what came to mind as we were talking that if I am going to college and I am pursuing a degree, I sat down with the counselor And I looked at, these are the steps that I can take to get from where I am to go get this degree. And in between that decision to pursue the degree and actually obtaining the degree, there were tests, there were disappointments, there were hurdles, there were classes I did not want to take. I didn't even understand why I needed to take them. And I certainly, if you had asked me if uh, it was necessary, I would have said no, and I wouldn't have taken them. Yet this curriculum course said, in order for you to achieve, this is to use your word, the pathway, this is the direction that you need to go. So if you're a parent out there listening and saying, now, wait a minute, how do I do that? I think you already know how. The difference is that your emotional state, your disconnection, your lack of intimacy, your lack of belonging when you're You're blending in your yuck. Yeah. I love this word. (laughs) It's it's a very versatile word. That's why I love it too. (laughs) And it's a four letter word too. So it's certainly appropriate. (laughs) What the yuck? That's right. That's right. So we know that we actually have the strategies to succeed. If we made it a shorter timeline, we could say that when you get your permit for driving, you don't have full permission, but you do have certain benefits of having a driver's permit. And you know that if you drive enough and drive the number of hours that are required in the timeframe that's required, 
that you will qualify for your permit, your actual driver's license, once you pass the test. And so I think what happens, and I, I speak just from my own viewpoint, if I were to say, if I were to break it down that way and say, okay, when I get my permit, I, I think in parenting, I was looking for an end game that, okay, so when I get here, then I'm done with all this yuck. When I get here, finally I can breathe. Yet when I get my driver's license, now I got to pay insurance and I'm agreeing to a whole bunch of stuff like stopping at the stop sign, dealing with the roundabouts. When I have an accident that creates more work and I need to be able to fix the accident. I think building or, or revealing, talking about a different picture, if you will, to help parents understand that while parenting, the there are phases in parenting and there are ages where you need to be more involved and model more for your kids, it does shift, it does change. And yet it never really ends. You and I were talking about this book, Building Love Together in Blended Families. And I was gonna go ahead and read an excerpt from it and then ask you to speak to it. And I know we've touched on this just a little bit. And I know by listening uh, to your podcast that you cover this in several from several different angles about pain and loss, which if you were writing this book, this would be yuck. Right here. <laughs> And my uh, book about yuck is coming out. So <laughs> love it. I love it. When that comes out, we'll get together again and you can share some more insight from what you put on the pages. But pain and loss, blended families are formed as a result of painful circumstances for both the children and the adults, death, divorce, or the dissolution of a romantic relationship. Every blended family starts with a lost narrative. When new people enter that narrative, pain and grief confuse the process of bonding and muddy the waters of trust. We've talked a little bit about this already. The area that I think it would be helpful to explore a little bit more is that area of trust. Can you share with us some insights related to this blending coming together from loss and how we build this trust? Yeah, I think the key to keep in mind is the brain, again, I said this earlier, we're survival-based. That's our primary goal as human beings. So when there is a loss, we really embed that in our memory and it affects, it creates a filter through which we see the future that we want to avoid this loss and this pain again. So we need to protect ourselves going forward. It's even as simple as if we were bitten by a dog when we were younger, as we get older, even if we see the cutest, smallest, sweetest dog, we are going to have an initial response of that may, there may be danger. And we could talk ourselves through it pretty quickly, but we will have that initial response. We have to learn to trust again. And our brain is going to say, no, don't trust because when you trust or when you love or when you're intimate, there's a potential for loss. So we do, we're hesitant to trust again. And kids are hesitant to trust again because very often the change in the family was not something they decided. It was out of their control. So their brain is saying, hey, do not trust someone again because it could be ripped away from you. So it takes time to build that back. The brain will be very protective of itself and of the, the person that is protecting. So it does take time. That's why I was talking before about the many attempts because we need many, 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 many attempts before we realize we are safe. Many, many attempts. So if you can show your child that, that you're safe or your stepchild that you're safe 10, 15, 20, 30 times, but they had a layer that was a hundred, they had a, a block of yuck that was a hundred layers of deep and you've gotten through 30, but not all hundred. 
So yeah. trust is built through evidence of safety. And it often takes a lot of evidence of safety before someone will trust again, because that's the brain's job is to protect. Even when something isn't really a threat, we still go to protect. That is probably a, a sense of hope for blended parents in this way to say that it isn't a traditional family. You're not coming with um, the same circumstances. And so therefore we shouldn't expect the same kind of outcomes in the same amount of time. We tend to lump things together, I know, and assume that we're gonna get the same kind of processes and timelines. And so for the blended parents, I just wanna remind them that blending takes longer. The purpose of this podcast is to give you encouragement and support and love and to let you know that because it takes longer, you need to hang in there longer. Absolutely. And if you see that it's actually normal, one of the things that we need to do to create useful stories that don't put us into yuck is to normalize. It's actually very normal. So when you see a child continuing to resist, that's normal. That's the way it's supposed to go. That's actually a more useful story. And then we'll continue to approach them because if we say, oh my gosh, I've tried so many times and they continue to resist me. That's a story that's going to put you into yuck. You're going to start to build up walls. And then that relationship with that child is just going to get further and further apart. It's going to get more and more distant. And the, the challenge, what happens is that disconnect with the step families blending together creates disconnect in the marriage. Absolutely. And so blended families, their divorce rate is 20 to 25% higher than non-blended couples. We definitely want to offer hope that it doesn't have to be that way. We have a goal of preventing re-divorce. There's a lot of yuck and suck in divorce and it plays out in a lot of different ways. If we can just encourage parents and let them know that if they choose a different approach where they focus not on who is a problem, but what is the problem, and then I'm changing the story. And that is what the, the tape that plays over and over in our heads again. Can you speak a little bit about how there's a very fast downward spiral in the sense of when things aren't going well with my stepkids and I get frustrated, I say, I just, this just sucks being a stepmom and I don't want to be a stepmom. And it just goes, can you speak to that a little bit? And then again, help us get out of that. hundred percent. Because what happens is we talked a little bit about this earlier. When we say this sucks, I, I don't like this. I, I hate being a step parent. My child is being difficult. That creates a threat that puts us into fight or flight. What happens when we are in fight or flight is we notice everything that's confirming all of the bad. When we're in fight or flight, our brain's gathering evidence that we are right and it actually, in fight or flight, disregards the evidence that we are wrong. So if someone is in yuck listening to this episode right now, what's going to happen is if they're in a lot of yuck, they're going to say, Jen's wrong, Rachel's wrong. I, I know that my situation is worse. That's a symptom to me of yuck. If someone is gathering all the information that yuck is, re is their yuck is so bad, they'll never get out of it. That's actually, to me, the fight or flight response trying to protect them. And we need to work on their yuck and, and chisel away a little at their yuck. But so we get into this downward spiral because our brain is looking for all that evidence and disregarding the possibility that there is a way out. It's what the brain does to keep us safe, although it doesn't ultimately work well for us. So what we need to do is first start to recognize that negative moods, attitudes, and behaviors are a symptom of yuck. So if you as a parent, as a step-parent, have negative behavior, moods, or attitudes, there's some sort of yuck, whether it's physical yuck clinical yuck, chemical yuck, biological yuck, or emotional mm. yuck, 
just mm -hmm. recognizing, hey, I have negativity here. There's some yuck I need to address. And that's when we say, is it physical yuck? Is there something biologically happening? Is it something emotional? And we absolutely, I've helped thousands of families reduce the yuck. And when we get out of it, that's when we see a positive spiral. Because when you're in a good place, you act consistently with your values and you start to get out of this place and you start to change the dynamics in the whole. Mm -hmm. So the confirmation bias is what you're talking about, that we are, if we're in a bad place, we find lots of confirming evidence everywhere that yes, I'm almost entitled to be in this bad place and stay in this bad place. And there are um, reasons that I should stay. That's what really the brain sees. Look at all this reason. Look at that reason. Look at that reason that this really is so awful. And that's also why when we try to cheer up our kids and they're in the office, it doesn't work because you say, hey, you studied for that test, you're gonna be fine. And they say, no, I'm not, because three years ago in math, I got to see, that's what we notice when we're in yuck. So that's why we can't use logic to cheer up our kids either. Yuck is that it is confirmation bias, but it's even stronger when we're in yuck than even when we're out of yuck, our confirmation bias is stronger, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. So that makes that takes me back to the four or five or even two or three-year-old and this modeling calm and confidence to them. Many parents are struggling with, do I put my kids in timeout or not put them in timeout? What kind of separation should you create between yourself and your children when the yuck is happening? Yeah, so to me, timeout is not, should not be punitive because basically a child, not that this is an excuse. So you'll hear a lot more of this if you listen to my podcast, but negative behavior is never, there's never an excuse ever for negative behavior, but there's a reason. And what happens is we don't address the reason we just punish. And because we don't address the reason, the negative behavior never really goes away. It just maybe goes down deeper underground. And then it comes out in the teenage years, very honestly, as things we don't want our teenagers to be doing. So to me, timeout is it shouldn't be punitive. It should be a regulation. It should be used to help children regulate. It should be used to help yourself regulate. So when a child is doing something negative, a negative behavior, mood, or attitude, first we need to regulate ourselves. So if we need to take a time out and leave to regulate ourselves, absolutely. Ideally though, we actually stay with the child. We help them do what I call traveling the yuck curve, which is how we help them regulate. So to me, a time out is way more. And, and even I always say this, to the parents I work with in the moment parenting is all about regulation. It's not about teaching anything. You can't teach in the moment when someone's in yuck. It's about regulating yourself. So take a time out for yourself, have compassion for yourself. That'll help you regulate. And then a time out for your child should look like where you're helping them get through their yuck because once they get through their yuck, they can reaccess that mature part of their brain. And then that's when they start to behave again. So yeah, time out is about regulation, not punishment. Got you. And you said basically stay together, not separate. So you as the parent, if you need to go get yourself together, then you're encouraging the parent to step away, maybe take some deep breaths, get some self-regulation going on, and then go back and be with the child. Whenever possible. Although I live in a real world where lots of parents have multiple children and they can't stay and regulate. That's, the, that's what I work with. So I'm telling you textbook right now, but mm -hmm. ideally textbook to answer your question, yes, they should be there. Some parents obviously can't. What I recommend is yuck spots in the home and mm -hmm. actually teaching, empowering a child to, this is what I teach for a living, empowering a child to recognize their own yuck and know where to go so that they can self-regulate. Yeah, so we ideally we're helping our kids regulate, but we're also teaching our kids how to regulate themselves. Yeah. 
And so it's not really a timeout chair now, it's a yuck chair. Is that it? <laughs> the way I teach parenting, absolutely. It's a yuck spot, a regulation chair. It's a, hey, can you, you know, work through your discomfort so that you're not taking it out on other people in this family? Because that's not, that those aren't our family values. It's not mm-hmm. how we respond. When we're in yuck, we reduce our yuck and then we come back and then we have because that's when conversations are going to go better anyway. Yeah, I love that. So here's what was the pictures that were coming into my mind. When you're saying you go to timeout, this is what you do. You go to timeout. And so this is all this energy that's coming out in this finger point, pointing somebody in the face. And nobody likes that. Nobody likes fingers pointed at them. No, and what's very interesting about what you just did, Jen, because I was on the other side of it because we're on video. Uh I actually saw this big finger coming towards me. And I'm like, (laughs) that's what children feel. I love that you did that. Because it really, you can see a big hand coming towards you. Who wants that? No one wants that. Yeah, right. that's a problem. It's more about instead of going, you see, I'll do it to you if I can go where my camera. Well, I know. It doesn't feel good. That's not what we want to do to our kids. We want to say, hey, and this is another thing that another phrase, and this one's actually mine, not someone else's. But when there's a negative behavior, you want it to be you and your child against the problem, not you against your child. I love so that. So you want you and your child against the problem. And the problem is often they don't know how to regulate. Mm-hmm. You and your child against the problem rather than you against your child. So when you're sticking that finger out, that's you against your child. And if you don't have your child's back, if you're not on their team, who's going to be on their team? You got to show them you can be against the problem together. Yeah. Wow. Um, I'm just... <sighs> I'm thinking back to when my husband and I went to pastoral counseling before we got married, there was no yuck discussion. Then there were a couple of tests that we took just to learn a little bit more about each other, but there was definitely zero counseling or guidance coaching on how you actually blend together. And so that is definitely a passion of mine to help give parents some empowering tools so that they understand that it does take longer when you blend and that there are strategies that will work, they're not necessarily gonna work in the moment. So it's a lot like baking a cake, right? You get all of the ingredients together. And and so I've learned this in this cooking class that my husband and I have been taking now. Uh, You mise en place, which is French for put everything in place. So you get all your ingredients together and then you read the recipe and then you execute. And when you execute, that's when you find out there might be something missing, or maybe you didn't read the recipe properly, but you keep going, you get the cake. And when you want to frost the cake, it takes a little bit of time because if you don't let the cake cool, (laughs) the frosting is going to melt all over and it's not going to stay on the cake. And so parenting is a lot like that in the sense that when we're getting the recipe, parents are seeking good counsel, whether they're going to a parenting specialist, whether they're going to a step family coach, whether they're going to a trauma specialist, because some families have trauma that requires some form of specialization. But I would argue that more often than not, parents just need some coaching. They need to practice this recipe and know that each time they bake this cake, they're going to get better. They're going to get faster. They're not even going to have to look at the recipe. They're not even going to think about it. They're just going to know you turn the oven on 350. It's going to be 50 minutes in here. They're going to know all of those things. And yet you and I are working with parents who are still trying to find the oven. Like, okay, wait, I think it's over here. And I think this is the temperature, but 
everything seems like a grind when you're in the yuck. And so what I've heard from you is this hope. Oh, that, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And to extend your, I love your recipe metaphor. I actually have loved many of your, your metaphors today, but to extend the, re the recipe metaphor, when you're putting those ingredients together, which you have to do to make a cake, it's ugly. It doesn't look like the cake is going to look later. All the ingredients, it's like sloppy and messy. And in the beginning to put something together, it is sloppy and messy very often. And you have to bake it and you have to wait for the, the goodness to come out, the shape to start to form. And then to your point, you have to wait till that solidifies before you can do the icing. And everyone wants the icing first. The icing is my favorite part, but you can't get the icing first. You have to have the foundation. Absolutely. That's a great metaphor. Yeah. So you have all the, the bowls and the measuring cups and the spatulas. So there's cleanup work that needs to be done. If I were to uh, put them that in the paradigm of families that forgiveness is required and of others and of self forgiveness right. forgiveness of self we're so hard on ourselves yeah really that again goes back to this very important ingredient in blended families of connection and intimacy and we're wanting and expecting things that come about when you've been in relationship and build up this trust with someone for a while at the beginning where the players, the team members, they're not ready to give that yet. One of the first steps that I work with families on is to identify who is on the team. All of these players that are influencing your kids, both in your home and outside of your home. Here's a big struggle that I'm sure that uh, with your blending experience as well, growing up that you can relate to that home one says, this is okay. And home two says, this is not okay. So what advice do you have for the parent in the less restrictive home? And then what advice do you have for the parent in the more restrictive home? I actually see this even, I work with blended families as well. Although I'm going to tell you, Jen, I'm sending them to you now because you're so good at this. Uh, but <laughs> non-blended families, um, I see this as well. My, my spouse is more strict than I am and we get into fights all the time. I'm more lenient, I'm more... What I very honestly do is encourage each parent to do what they feel is best, very honestly, because here's what happens. A lot of parents will say, am I damaging my child if they're going to another house and it's more strict? I'm more strict. Am I damaging my child? And here's the thing that doesn't damage children. They simply learn what they can get away with in which house. And as a child of divorce, of growing up in two homes, that was absolutely the case. And now even helping parents, I can see that from a clinical perspective. They just learn what to expect in each house. In that house, I don't have to do homework. In this house, I do. You just learn that. And ultimately, what I think is so important is that each parent in a way that is consistent with their values, because that's what kids sense. We Children need parents who are confident, who, who do act from a place of their... I, I distinguish when you're parenting from yuck and fear versus parenting from your values because yuck and fear prevent us from parenting from our values. And every child needs a parent who's, who's parenting from their values. So I do talk a lot about what you can do to talk to another, your spouse or co-parent if they're not parenting like you, but ultimately you've got to focus on yourself. That's really what it's so important and your relationship with your child and what you feel is the right thing to do. And they'll get used to that. They'll also start to see you as safe or not safe. 
And that's ultimately what you want to work on is your relationship with them and your values. One of the things that I said is that I, there are certain things that I wish I had known early on, some of these intricacies of blending and understanding from the kid's perspective. And what's, what I'm so thankful for is since I started doing this podcast, each episode, I get more of a heart for the kids who are experiencing. I see that more and more as I do research to prepare and as I read more books. And I think that is something that if you are a parent listening right now, this is not about who's right. This is about what is right. And that we have this awesome responsibility to parent these kids. And for those days that it doesn't go so well, it's not the whole parenting gig that is going down the tubes. It goes back to forgiving ourselves and making a, making a firm decision that, okay, so I'm going to pursue getting more tools because I want to get better at this. Again, just like if I were a professional baseball player, I've got to go to spring training just because I know baseball or just because I have this natural God-given talent to whack the ball out of the park. I still need to go to spring training. I I need to, and let's talk about that for a minute. Why do we need to go to spring training? We need to go because We don't know who's going to show up. We don't really know. And we've got to figure out how are we going to work with these people, the pitchers on the mound and the catchers there and the catchers always, he's sending these signals, always sees whatever's going on. So there's this hidden communication that goes on too. And the only way for us to learn that is to get the playbook. This is what I want to encourage parents to do is to go get the playbook. The playbook is not uh, google.com. The playbook is seeking out people who have experience in your area. So wherever you are in parenting, whether you're blended or not, there are tools, there are resources out there that can help you improve on parenting. One of the biggest responsibilities that we have once we become parents, what are we going to do to focus on improving our skills? Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that, let me actually, I want to say one thing before I speak to the improving our skills, that as a daughter of divorced parents, I will say that my my parents' divorce was complicated, but on paper, it looked like my mom was wronged. And I, it's more complicated than that, but my mom on paper, if anyone saw what happened, my mom was very wronged. Mm-hmm. Yet, she could have had so much yuck in the world. She was basically left with three kids, no money after not having worked. And again, it's more complicated than that, but she managed to work through that. So the worst situation, she just said, Hey, my children are my priority. And I have so much yuck. I have so much yuck. I have, I I, I don't have a job right now. I have three children. I was really young at the time. It is possible. And she ended up just, you, you talked about forgiveness. She forgave herself. She forgave my dad. And she did such a good job that I just want to say it's possible. My brothers and I have to say turned out pretty well. We did. So it's possible. I just want to say that as a child going through this, someone who's wronged can still get through this. She did a lot of work on her own. Yeah, she did a lot of work. But then to, to speak to the skills, here's the thing that if we think about this concept of yuck and we can't meet our full potential when we are in yuck, we what pulls our brain out of yuck is the story. We mentioned this, the story we're telling ourselves. And when our brain knows we have the skills to deal with anything that comes up, we feel safe and we stay out of yuck. So the reason we need those skills is because our brain will say, yeah, there's this challenge, but I know how to handle it. And I will also emphasize this. I always say capability doesn't come from feeling like you're good at everything. Capability comes from knowing you can handle it when you're not good at something. I work with a lot of parents on teaching their kids how to solve problems. 
because the amount of capability that comes from knowing how to solve problems is tremendous. And that's a skill that we can learn. So skills are what pull us out of the yuck. Skills and action pull us out of the yuck. So that's why it's so important. And so in there, what I heard was this, that there is acknowledgement that we cannot do this on our own. Correct. And if we tie it back into this need for intimacy and connection, we're not supposed to do it on our own. That's exactly right. We are not supposed to do this on our own. One of the things I'm doing in my parenting academy right now is actually getting everyone together to talk about their yuck. And you'd think, oh, everyone's wallowing and complaining. That's not at all what, it, what happens when we get a group of people together to talk about our yuck we feel so much more connected and hopeful. Even when we don't talk about solutions, just knowing we're not alone, we're not supposed to go through this alone at all. It's just not how human, we're social creatures by nature, even introverts. My husband is the most introverted introvert. Even he needs people after four or five days. He can go four (laughs) or five days, but he needs people eventually. We've talked about several things here. I wonder if there is some message that you have or some sense based on our conversation that there's one more thing that you would like to share to give. Let's first, let's speak to two different groups. If we can, let's first speak to the kids and acknowledge that we see you and we hear you and we're not always going to get it right, but a message, if you would, for the kids, and then we'll come back around and then uh, a message for the parents. I would say if we're speaking to kids, I don't even know that I would say it would be words. To me, it would be showing them that their perspective doesn't matter less just because they're kids. That what they're going through matters. And I would show them that through caring about their point of view. Instead of trying to, because what we do as adults, we convince them that they should see things the way we do. And so what I would do for kids, instead of saying to kids, oh, you can say to them, your perspective matters. I would show them that their perspective matters by asking them, how does this stink for you? And then at the end, just saying, you know what? Thank you for telling me. You don't have to go through this alone. You don't have to be alone with your feelings. Maybe that's a phrase I would use if you wanted me to say something to a child. You're feeling a lot. You don't have to go through it alone. And just showing them that they matter. So that's where I would probably go with kids. Okay. Someone said that to me, even today, in my 40s, even today, that feels good, that you don't have to be alone with this. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's a piece that I heard in there too. You didn't say it, but I heard it is that it's not always our responsibility to fix it. Oh, I talk about that a lot. It's rarely our responsibility to fix it. It's our responsibility to be present, be present. So to show compassion. And so the message to the parents is wrapped into how we respond to the kids, right? The message to the parents, for sure. The the one thing I would say as a takeaway is um, stop trying to control and change your kids and other people and focus on what is in your control, which is reducing your own yuck. And what I will tell you is when you reduce your yuck, it has such a tremendous impact on the people around you more than trying to control them to begin with. Control what's in your control, which is only you. Gotcha. And so throughout the conversation, here's a thought in the back of my brain that's been going on. And so it's come back again. So I'm going to grab onto it and talk about this briefly. So it's a lot like, so you're smiling at me. You have such a beautiful smile, such presence here on video. It's just such a great opportunity to visit with you and to glean your wisdom for parents and for blended families. So I so appreciate you coming today to share what you have to share. And as I respond to you showing up, 
I want to show up too. So it's this whole smiling at you and returning that smile. And so if you're in a tough spot where you're not smiling, so you're in this yuck, a lot of times what I'll hear is that it's so hard to move from this yuck into a good place. And here's what I remember growing up as a kid. I remember we were forbidden to sit on the counters, on the kitchen counters, but for some reason that was the coolest place to sit on the phone. So it was the corded phone. It probably was push button by then, wasn't rotary, probably push button, but this big long cord. And I remember one day my mom sitting on the counter on the phone after she had told us repeatedly that we are not supposed to sit on the counter with the phone. But I think she realized, she said, you know, what is the big deal here? And as I think about that phone moment, it it reminds me that we can be in this heated conversation with someone, or we can be pointing the finger at our kids or anybody who's in our space. And we answer the phone and what happens? Hello. Hi. So I'm going to cry foul. If you're a parent out there saying, I can't shift on a dime and say, are you sure? Because I think you probably have shifted on a dime and unfortunately, and yet as an awareness, we often respond, gosh, on a higher level to strangers mm-hmm. than we do to our family members. And if I were to turn that and spin that, I would say that's actually reflective that there is trust and connection and intimacy and forgiveness in your family because we're, we let our guard down a little more often than we do when we're speaking with people that we, that are acquaintances or strangers. What would you say to that? Often kids will hold it together at school, for example, and then come home and just dump everything out because it's like, it does take energy though. I will say to be on, we know how to be on and we can turn on, on in a dime. We can do that. It does take a lot of, but I agree with you for sure that when we then are in a safer place, because we've held it together for so long, we let it out for sure. One of the things that also helps us turn it around in the moment, I actually suggest doing what I call yuck dumps, where a lot of parents will say, I I just can't get myself out of it. And I think one of the reasons we can't get ourselves out of it is because we try so hard to get ourselves out of it, rather than, I always say, you actually need to release the yuck to make space for the positive. So release that yuck, write it all down, talk it into your phone, whatever you have to do. And I even say to parents, when you're doing a yuck dump, you think you're done, write down two or three more things, get it all out. And then I actually have people do things with their yuck dumps, but make the space because often we're just trying to hold it together and hold it in and keep the lid down. Sometimes we need to let the lid off, write down everything that's just driving us crazy to be able to get to that place where we can turn more. So many good. One last point that I had on my notes that I wanted to make sure that we covered that this is the long game. And you mentioned that repeatedly in your materials in the YouTube videos that you have and in your podcast, this is long-term parenting. I think I can speak for Rachel when I say, if you're interested in long-term solutions with short-term gains all along the way, then we're definitely your people. And I love the yuck dump. What a great idea. You've given us so many ideas here to share. And I thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate the conversation and the metaphors that we've expanded together. I want to give you an opportunity to share with our audience some resources that you have or a place that you can point them. Rachel, please share a little bit with our audience about how they can connect with you. Sure, sure. So I have my podcast, which is called Your Parenting Long Game. 
And I moved people from Band-Aid parenting, which in the short term, this doesn't work, to long-term results. Then I have the podcast, which you can find on any podcast app and a Facebook group that goes along with it. So it's a free Facebook group called Your Parenting Long Game Podcast Community. I'm also going to give a resource to your audience that talks a little bit more about those emotional needs and yuck and what might be causing the negative behavior. That resource is called Why Is My Child Doing That? And How Can I Get Them to Stop? And then if anyone's interested in more support from me, the best way to get support from me is actually at a very low-priced membership-based parenting academy that I have. And that's where I'm really working with parents more one-on-one and giving the the formulas and the systems that I teach so that parents can feel more in control of the change. And I love what you said about, yeah, this is definitely the long game. What is very important to, I know you, I will speak for you now, and to me is that you do get short-term wins. You do get short-term relief, but it is a long game. And those, I can give you, what do I do if my child won't get off of their device? That's going to help you with the device, but it's not going to make everything better in the family. We do get short-term wins for long-term results. That's really what I'm interested in as well. That's great. And that really speaks to who do we want our children to become and how do we embrace our responsibility as stewards of these kids, Absolutely, stewards of these gifts, really, even though they don't always come wrapped in a pretty bow, how do we steward these children in our parenting, whether it is traditional or blended family parenting? Rachel, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate your time and your insights and your practical tools and resources. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed today's show, would you tell somebody and share today's episode with them? Thanks so much. See you next time.